Hi everyone. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Tansu Dailan, who is a postdoctoral associate at MIT. Dr. Dailan's primary research interest is in the discovery and characterization of exoplanets. What would you say are your main areas of interest in astrophysics? So my main area of interest at the moment is exoplanets detection and characterization, but I've also previously worked on dark matter, especially um, on on two fronts regarding dark matter. One on indirect detection, so when dark matter self annihilates or decays into states that we can otherwise observe uh, using gamma rays or other observables uh, from high energy. Um, that's indirect detection. So I've worked on that. And also I've uh, worked on strong lensing, which is another way uh, dark matter gravitates and manifests itself in nature. But um, coming back to exoplanets, I mostly work on detection of exoplanets using TESS um, and uh, other auxiliary uh, data sets, uh, such as archival data sets, photo photometric data sets, as well as radio, radio velocity. Um, these, in general, just uh, come together for us to vet, first of all, and then characterize exoplanetary systems. How do you go about determining whether there is an exoplanet in the data that you can... Right, okay. So I guess this is mostly about transit method, because in TESS we use the transit method. Um, typically, TESS, uh, or in general, any transit survey, is going to blindly stare at the patch of sky for a certain amount of time. Typically, in order to find transits, uh, you need to have an observational baseline that's much longer than a transit duration. And typically, you want multiple transits, at least in your data. So that means you want to observe at least a few times the orbital period. So, uh, and TESS is ideal for that because TESS spends Roughly an orbit, um, that's about 13.7 days for tests, uh, just staring at a patch of sky. And then it does so again in the second cycle, the two together we call a sector. And these sectors in general are uh, about 30 days. Um, and sometimes we happen to be looking at a particular point even longer than 30 days because some sectors actually overlap. So that gives us a baseline. And then during this baseline, we basically measure the brightness, the relative brightness of the object um, as a function of time. We call that a light curve. And then we um, start acting on this time series data with certain um, uh, mathematical operations, statistical procedures. The first one is basically so-called detrending because we need to do that because the uh, light curve that I just mentioned, the differential light curve in time, typically have uh, trends um, that, uh, that, that would otherwise preclude any search for periodic transits. These trends um, can uh, be generated due to multiple processes. First, uh, there can be scattered light in the detector. So essentially, TESS is just a bunch of CCDs, charged couple devices that sit on the focal plane of uh, four cameras. And uh, when, when, um, when there is scattered light due to um, Earth and Moon, uh, you might actually have gradients in your light curves, and you want to get rid of these. And the other uh, reason is when we do aperture photometry, that is, we collect photons, all the photons that land in a particular aperture, and um, then measure 
its relative brightness to a background, we tend to get basically trends due to the fact that the point sources actually move on the focal plane. And that's because of the differential velocity aberration, uh, or sometimes just the fact that the pointing is unstable, or pointing of the instrument is unstable. For either of these reasons, there's also jitter and all that. Um, basically, point sources can have, again, uh, time derivatives uh, over long time scale. So we have to remove these. So we do so by a so-called, uh, by a procedure so-called uh, detrending. And once the light curves are detrended, we basically are left with um, time series uh, where most of the power is at uh, short time scales. Uh, I'm using a little of a uh, jargon here. So what I really mean is it's almost like a flat light curve, but there's, there's a lot of noise at short time scales like um, well, first at the shortest time scales, like a few minutes or so, you actually have just photon noise. But beyond that, there's also a lot of um, so-called red noise that is not at the shortest time scales, but at time scales relevant for our search, like a few hours and sometimes a few days. Uh, we need to get rid of these sometimes through um, uh, customized uh, uh, masks and detrending uh, schemes. But anyways, at the end of this, you're basically left with a time, scare, a time series over which you can now do um, a Boxley squares uh, search. Boxley squares is um, essentially the algorithm where you have a grid of trial periods and at each such trial period, you face fold the time series onto itself and you ask the question, is there a dip in this so-called phase curve? Um, when you face fold the time series onto a trial period, um, you basically look for an arbitrary duty cycle, an arbitrary phase for that um, dip. And if you find one, you just take a note of that, move on to your next period. And then you do this for all the periods and eventually you look for um, uh, depths that are very significant in this period space because otherwise you'll get a lot of false uh, positives. But if there's a peak in the so-called spectrum, then you actually um, take that as a candidate detection. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you detected an exoplanet because there are many astrophysical phenomena that can also mimic such uh, periodic transit. Uh, first, we know that stars actually uh, eclipse each other. So there's there are binary stars that you would have to get rid of. And binary stars uh, have a really large occurrence rate. So if you pick a random uh, transit detection in nature, it's very likely for it to actually come from, depending on the radius and radius ratio, uh, it's very likely for it to come from a binary star as opposed to a star in a transiting exoplanet. So once you get rid of these backgrounds, then you also have to think about other um, false positive scenarios. Obviously, I'm just assuming that you've gotten rid of all the instrumental background hypotheses. There are certain situations where instrumental backgrounds can also mimic that. But once you reduce it to an astrophysical hypothesis, then you have to get rid of the binary star explanation. There is also stellar variability. There are certain stars which manifest oscillations which can mimic a, a transit shape when 
you look at it in the face space. But once you get rid of all these, then it becomes a legit planet candidate, which we then alert, and that becomes now the beginning of a whole new pipe pipeline called the test follow-up pipeline. And uh, dedicated telescopes and observers go and try to characterize that target even further. That's because TESS uh, has giant pixels, 20 arc seconds each side, because of that. Um, whenever we get a signal, uh, and even despite all this pipeline I just mentioned of vetting um, the tra transit signals, we just cannot make sure that the particular transit is due to an exoplanet because we cannot pin down the host star in general, or we cannot rule out any uh, close neighbors. So we basically have to rely on uh, follow-up, especially in the form of high uh, resolution uh, photometric follow-up as well as radio velocity follow-up. We have to rely on this to make sure that it's actually an exoplanet that's transiting. Or we cannot really prove that it's an exoplanet, but we can rule out that it's a stellar binary. Uh, once you have an idea that this object could be a transiting exoplanet, how do you go about characterizing it? And what are the sort of things you're looking to characterize? Well, once it's an exoplanet, that means we have an upper bound on its mass that's below the mass that separates a brown dwarf from an exoplanet, um, which is roughly 13 uh, Jupiter masses or so. Once we know that it's an exoplanet, um, you obviously, the, the next thing you want to know is its density. Um, and if, if it's a transit survey, that means you already have a radius measurement from the transit. Um, and you, if you have done the radial velocity follow-up to actually be able to constrain its mass, you already have a good understanding of its mass too. So that's a great combination that gives you the bulk density. And the bulk density already play, places it in the equation of state space. That means you roughly know whether it's a gaseous giant, whether it's a terrestrial planet, or whether it's something in between. And in general, I would even say that um, just given the radius of an exoplanet, you already have a pretty good understanding of its density distribution. But unfortunately, at fixed radius, the given exoplanet population has a very large um, internal scatter. Uh, like, for example, at a given radius, uh, there's a big mass range and hence a density range that an exoplanet can have. So having the mass, the mass independently measured uh, essentially allows us to pin down the density within this large distribution. Um, but obviously having the density itself is not the last thing you can do. Obviously there is a lot of other things. For example, we can try to see if there's an atmosphere or not. And if so, if there is one atmosphere, then what kind of constituents it has? For example, does it have water? Does it have methane? Does it have carbon dioxide? You can try to answer such questions. And you can also try to answer questions about its atmosphere, not from a, a composition point of view, but from a heat recirculation point of view. How efficient is heat recirculation? Are there clouds? Are they reflective of or not? Um, and uh, what's the temperature distribution on the planet uh, as a function of latitude and longitude, etc. You can try to answer such questions. Is there, for example, an um, equatorial uh, jet that's um, 
carrying energy from the day side to the night side. And when I say day and night side, I'm assuming that it's tidally locked. It doesn't have to be so. Uh, but anyway, so in order to answer such questions, you then basically have to have spectroscopic follow-up um, and also have a potentially, if you can, have a phase curve for the exoplanet that would essentially give you the day side temperature as well as how the temperature essentially changes um, as the uh, as the planet basically goes around the um, uh, host star. Um, so using all of this information, then you can start saying something about the exoplanet's atmosphere and its characteristics, uh, its uh, co uh, composition, um, as well as things like uh, you know pressure, temperature profile in its atmosphere. Um, uh, which then gives you the the kinetic structure uh, of of its uh, of its atmospheric uh, uh, characterization basically these are important questions because we need to contextualize our giant planets uh, as well as our terrestrials in the much larger scheme of exoplanet demographics so how what are the measures of uncertainty on these characteristics such as mass and density because like how close can you be to the true value of this exoplanets so first these are indirect methods um, detection methods or measurement methods that means um, for example in, in in transit methods we measure uh, observationally speaking the radius ratio between the uh, the planet or whatever occulter is and the background light source so um, because that's the measurement when you try to infer by doing the inverse solution if once you try to infer the radius of the planet your measurement cannot be better than your measurement of the uh, host star so you're uh, when you try to shrink your uncertainties of the planetary radius you're you need you you need to shrink the uncertainty on two things the radius ratio which you can do by increasing your photometric precision by basically either going to brighter stars or having a larger mirror to begin with to do better photometry um, but also you need to shrink the uncertainty on the host radius or the host stars radius um, without that uh, good photometric precision is really not going to get you anywhere because the, you will not know the radius of the star and in order to do so uh, well we need to first do better astrometry on the host star because the radius of the host star can only be constrained if you know the distance to the star very well. Um, and that's been, historically speaking, the largest uh, source of uncertainty until, I guess, uh, Gaia uh, went up and actually uh, started um, driving really precise uh, parallaxes for these stars. So um, with, with the Gaia, um, I guess, revolution, we can call it, we started really having really small percent level um, uh, or multiple percent level um, uh, host star radiuses or radii. And with that, we really, the, the, the contribution of the host stars uncertainty uh, and the transit depths uncertainty started to become almost like comparable in many situations. And that's obviously a good thing. Um, and on the mass side, unfortunately, the, the mass uncertainties are typically larger. Now, 
the mass uncertainties, we have to obviously break down into two groups. There is the mass when you don't know the inclination, and that is a big uncertainty because you just don't know. You cannot break the degeneracy. What you only measure is the mass of the um, orbiting planet or whatever object and sign of the inclination angle. Uh, you can only constrain that product and that creates a lot of uncertainty on the mass itself if you marginalize over the inclination. Now, when you know the inclination, such as in a transiting configuration, then the uncertainty on the mass really is your uh, is the is the measurement uncertainty on the semi semi amplitude of the radial velocity signal, and that you can start to decrease if you basically use a larger mirror or just better CCDs basically to do this, then um, the state of the art is really that uh, for, for, for some exoplanets, we started to go down the one meter per second um, historical limit. Like until recently, one meter per second was really the, the floor, the uncertainty floor, but more recently we started to go below a meter per second. And um, uh, depending on what exoplanetary system you're uh, talking about, you can definitely have very precise uncertainties on both the radius and mass. Uh, obviously, that those exoplanets are those for which we have a lot of both um, photometric and radio velocity data and also happen to be in a transiting configuration. Otherwise, that's not possible. In the future, with the Roman mission, do you expect you will be able to detect many more exoplanets with improved sort of equipment and lower uncertainties? Is that the idea? So the Roman space telescope's cadence and observation strategy will actually be optimized not for transit surveys, but for microlensing. Um, so um, Roman space telescope is definitely going to contribute significantly to exoplanet research. Uh, but most of that is going to come from um, basically a new survey that's going to be optimized for exoplanets with very small masses uh, and around an astronomical unit uh, away from their host stars. And this will be in the form of their atmospheric, uh, sorry, uh, uh, um, astrometric signature. Um, the astrometry essentially is, is the observable that stars move on the sky, not just because of their proper motion or not just because of their parallax, but also because of a gravitational perturber around them. If that's, uh, that's a planet, then um, there will be a lot of um, uh, signal from there, but also the microlensing uh, uh, signature, which is an independent signature that comes from exoplanets. And that's not, uh, uh, because of this tubadi problem, but from the gravitational effect of the um, of the planet around the host star. So basically, when stars um, uh, not uh, not really uh, eclipse each other, but basically when a foreground star um, bends the light from a background star by passing almost in front of it. The planet as a perturber, the planet around the um, lensing star essentially introduces a perturbation to the light curve from, uh, from the total system. And by basically measuring this um, uh, 
the Roman Space Telescope is going to conduct a microlensing survey. And that microlensing survey is going to give us a lot of exoplanets around astronomical units. Um, and I think that's going to be super exciting because most of the planets we know from Kepler and TESS and also from ground-based surveys, they are closed-in planets. We do have the ability to find long um, period planets, but really that's the tail of the distribution that you can get from TESS and Kepler. Yes, we do find them, but they're definitely not doing a statistical survey there. We're just sampling some random planets from the tail because of our inability to extend these surveys to really long periods because of just the geometric factor that is when you go to large orbital periods the transit probability goes really low um, however from the micro from the micro lensing surveys we get an optimized detection around this uh, astronomical unit scale that means it's really a statistical survey there so it's it will be complementary to kepler and tess and it will be very exciting as we explore the occurrence rates of exoplanets up to and past uh, astronomical units. Wow, that's interesting. And so uh, for my last question, so you mentioned that before your work with exoplanets, you did some work into dark matter and dark energy. Are you planning on continuing down the exoplanet route or do you perhaps think you'll move into other fields in the future? So at this point, actually, I do work on both uh, at the same time, um, but... Oh. And I do spend most of my time on exoplanets. The dark matter research, um, especially when it comes to the type of problem I think about mostly, which is transdimensional um, gravitational imaging. That is when you have strong lens system, when you have a strong lens system of galaxy galaxy type, that is you have a galaxy in the foreground, another galaxy in the background, and the mass distribution in the foreground essentially strongly lenses the mass, uh, the light distribution from the background. Um, the uh, subhalos in the foreground can introduce very interesting perturbations to your image. That's the problem I mostly think about, and I currently still uh, work on that. And I think in the last few years, we had a lot of very good detections from the dark energy survey. And I guess um, also before that, uh, uh, a lot of other detections. But um, I think at this point, we are going to enter a regime where we need to spend a lot of time and I guess telescope time too, to individually characterize these so that we can start doing precision cosmology with them. Um, we do have a lot of very good strong lensing candidates, but we are what we are lacking is a good model, good generative model, detailed model of these strong lenses, and that's what I'm going to be mostly focusing on. Okay, uh, I think that brings me to the end of my question. So thank you very much for speaking to me. Um, I really enjoyed this, um, and the best of luck in future attempts at discovering and characterizing these exoplanets. Thanks, Vikram. Yeah, thanks for the questions. Thank you.